our passage this morning is one Corinthians. Listen for what God is saying to you. I have the freedom to do anything, but not everything is helpful. I gave the freedom to do anything, but I won't be controlled by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. And yet God will do away with both. The body isn't for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. God has raised the Lord and will raise us through his power. Don't you know that your bodies are parts of Christ? So then should I take parts of Christ and make them a part of someone who is sleeping around? No way. Don't you know that anyone who is joined to someone who is sleeping around is one body with that person? The scripture says... The two will become one flesh. The one who is joined to the Lord is the one who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Avoid sexual immorality. Every sin that a person can do is committed outside the body. Except those who engage in sexual immorality commit sin against their own bodies. Or don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Don't you know that you have the Holy Spirit from God and you don't belong to yourselves? You don't have, you have been, been bought and paid for so honor with God's, your, with your body. May God add a blessing to the hearing of the scripture. Amen. Thank you, Robbie. This was Robbie's debut reading scripture for us, so everyone's giving him a good hand. Thank you so much. You know, I, I asked Robbie to read the scripture passage, and then I thought about what I actually was saying. And, the, but, and I asked him, are you, are you nervous about it? He said, no, I'm fine. So, all right. Um, we are blessed by his reading and his courage. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for this morning that we get to um, come together and dig into um, your word and what it has to say to us, how it um, is ready to transform us. And so we invite your spirit to move freely throughout our hearts and minds um, to receive what it is that you have to say to even be transformed by what it is um, that you are doing um, even this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a few months after I moved to Chicago, um, I was invited to a Halloween party. And since I didn't have much money, then I had to get creative, right? Fortunately for me, creativity is my middle name. Um, I made a mental inventory of all the things that I had with me, and I came up with an awesome idea for a costume. I had a pair of cropped leggings, black cropped leggings. I had a white button-up shirt. I had a red scarf, and I had a pair of black flats. I would be a matador. <laughs> that evening, I put my costume on and I drew on my pencil mustache and I was ready. But when I got to the party, all the women were dressed in these sexy costumes. There was sexy nurse, sexy little red riding hood, sexy Goldilocks, sexy everything. And I seriously had no idea that these kinds of costumes existed. I thought they were just like in fratty movies, right? Um, so there I was, feeling 
um, kind of deflated and rather mannish, unintentionally, uh, in my matador costume with my penciled-in mustache. And as the party went on and my mustache melted away, I realized that this was not the place where I was going to make my Chicago BFF, or even an F. So <laughs> later on, I learned that there is a whole industry de um, dedicated to a sexy version of just about any costume you could think of. There's sexy caterpillar. There's sexy sea turtle. There's sexy elephant. And the list goes on and on, probably with the most terrifying one of them all being sexy Ronald McDonald. Right? That's scary. That's not sexy. Um, so we're in this series, right, about love and sex and relationships. And today we are talking about the construction of desire. That is how we've been shaped to think about what is desirable. And if these costumes are any indication, all you have to do is stick a pair of long legs and some cleavage on something, and it's insta-sexy, right? So on one hand, there's like the sexification of everything. And then, but then there's the other end of the spectrum, right? So when I was in college, I started hearing about these things called purity rings. Maybe you've heard of them. It was mainly a white Christian evangelical movement called True Love Waits that came out of the Southern Baptist Convention, but then quickly caught on across denominations. Purity rings were a kind of promise ring, a promise ring that you made, a promise that you made to yourself and to God and to your future husband or wife that you would keep yourself pure, a virgin, until you were married. And there's a whole history behind purity tied to the preservation of white supremacy in the US and how images of light and dark, black and white, are employed. Um, and tied up with senses of purity, um, but that's a whole nother thing. So I'm just going to like acknowledge that, but I'm going to set it over here at this point. So there would be these huge rallies full of mostly white preteens and teenagers who were coerced into making these promises. They would sign contracts saying that they would make this purity prom promise. And actually, Brittany, the pastor of our Andersonville site, shared about a friend of hers who attended one of these rallies as a teen and made a pledge not to have sex with her boyfriend. As it turns out, this wasn't too difficult for her friend. And in fact, it probably saved her from some awkward situations now that she is happily married to the woman of her dreams. <laughs> so true love waits is just one version of the sort of no sex before marriage culture in many Christian circles. And in those circles, you would hear these pastors, and sometimes they would drag up their poor wives to provide a woman's perspective to talk about sex, how awesome it is, and how you will ruin it if you gave in and had sex before you were married. And it sort of created this tension within folks, right? Like, okay, sex is totally awesome. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait, right? But I'm 15 years old, and so I have to wait. And I have to wait until I find the right man or woman that God has intended me to marry. And how do I do that, right? And what do I do between now and then? And you get all of this advice. Mostly it was for guys, because guys are the only ones who are interested in sex. Um, advice about how to keep your mind pure, right? So things like keep the remote in your hand, because when you're watching sports, you never know when a beer commercial with sexy women is going to come on, and you should just change the channel immediately. Or ask your mom or your sister to throw out any catalogs that might have images in them that might cause you to stumble. So I mean, you know, I'm not going to hate too hard on that, but like, it's interesting. Um, so if you t if you so if you really take this seriously, right? You're trying to be like a really good Christian and follow 
um, the things that people that you trust are saying to you, you say, well, okay, you start to sort of like go down this rabbit hole. Well, what makes for pure? Like, how far is too far? And then you get some folks, like some people I knew, who committed to not have their first kiss until their wedding day, when they were up there, had made their vows. Or you had other folks who would kiss or make out and then feel this like intense guilt about it, right? So one guy, Dave Dickerson, talks about his experiences um, as a deeply faithful, young, evangelical Christian struggling to stay pure in his mind um, in this episode of This American Life. So there's audio for it. So poor Dave had spent years of his life obsessing about sex, and not so much about sex itself, but how to avoid thinking about it and wanting it and being distracted by it. He spent so much of his time and energy and mind space that it was taking over his life. His grades were starting to suffer, he said. He exerted all this energy to not think about sex at all. And his spirituality, his sense of worth and his self had been reduced to this one issue. He had become a flat, two-dimensional version of himself. So on one hand, you have like the sexualization of everything to ridiculous degrees, right? And then on the other hand, you have repression of the slightest thought that felt remotely sexual. These are the extremes. The book ends on how desire has been constructed in American culture and society. 
And then there's all the other stuff in between, right? The stuff like my mom lamenting how I got her nose and the eyelid surgery that helps Asian women achieve more Western-looking eyes, or the paper bag test, or the idealization of light skin, long hair. There's the ostracization of being a gay male who is not slim or chiseled or perfectly coiffed. Your body gets sliced and diced and every square inch of you is examined and measured and categorized for its attractiveness and worthiness. Many people buy into the rules that emerge for out of this and try to live accordingly. And what they end up doing is flattening themselves out, of reducing themselves to a set of destructive standards that leaves everyone feeling, even the ones who like fit it, right? Everyone feeling like they are not good enough. Because even the ones who fit within those standards are on edge that at any moment they're gonna lose it. And this is because it's and because and this because it's the air we breathe. It's the wallpaper of our world. These cultural ideals become normal, right? Sexy caterpillar is normal. <laughs> and it's normal until someone snaps us out of it, right? In many ways, this is what the Apostle Paul is doing when he's writing to the Church of Corinth. Up to this point, he's been talking about specific things folks have been doing, like things like taking each other to court, or one guy who was like sleeping with his stepmother. The drama was crazy. And the thing about culture is that it's the water you're swimming in, right? It's so regular to you that it becomes normal, no matter how abnormal it may be. And sometimes you need someone outside of the system, outside of that space, right, to help you see just how off you are. And so Paul calls out their culture, and he uses this phrase. He says, I have the freedom to do anything, right? And this is a common phrase that got thrown around at the time, like, it's a free country. You're not the boss of me, right? Paul says, yes, you have freedom to do anything. But, he adds this bit on, but not everything is helpful. And then he uses this other common saying in the culture, food is for the stomach and stomach is for food. And when people were using this phrase, they were talking about sex, like, hey man, we've got the parts, let's just do it. That's what they're there for. And his response gets sharper. He says, the body isn't for sexual immorality, the body is for God, and God is for the body. And he's building this argument. He's taking kind of the common cultural sayings and he's, just turning them, right, to help them be a little more thoughtful. He's trying to get the Corinthians to see that they are more than just this body, right, more than just the stuff on the surface. They are, he's saying, you are more than body and hormones. You are not two-dimensional. You are a spiritual, soulful being. And your spiritual, soulful self is tied up with your bodily being. What you do with your soul makes a difference for your body, and what you do with your body makes a difference for your soul. And he goes on specifically to talk about the effect that having sex with prostitutes does to your spirit. Because sex at its highest, most idealized, most God-shaped form is one that communicates deep love and wanting and grace to one another. We talked about this last week. So when you engage in commodified sex, flat sex, sex has no relationship, that has no relationship where there is no communication of self or another to you, when that's the kind of sex that you're having, you are flattening yourself. Does that make sense? You're leaving behind all the things that give sex and sexuality their significance. Food is for the stomach, and stomach is for the food. Nothing more, nothing less. The theologian Frederick Buechner captures it exactly um, what Paul is trying to say. He says, at its roots, the hunger for food is the hunger for survival. 
At its roots, the hunger to know a person sexually is the hunger to know and be known by a person humanly. Food without nourishment doesn't fit, fill the bill for long, and neither does sex without humanness. One appealing view is that anything goes as long as nobody gets hurt. The trouble is that human beings are so hopelessly psychosomatic in composition that whatever happens to the soma, the body, happens also to the psyche, the mind, and vice versa. What Paul is saying is this. Don't allow yourself to be flattened. Don't allow the standards of your culture to be the ultimate determiner of, who, of how you view your body and what you do with it. Be more thoughtful than that. Be thoughtful of how you view yourself and others. Be thoughtful about what you do with your body and who you do it with. Be thoughtful. Be three-dimensional. First, this means be honest about who you are. And it also means allowing others to be honest about who they are. So we have a video here to show you. So there's Mac, this transgender man here, who realized that there was no space for him or for anyone to be their whole, honest selves. He experienced church as a place where folks are expected to contort themselves to fit into a mold just, that just about no one could truly fit. And it becomes this weird game of chicken in church where no one is able to be vulnerable in the wrong ways. No one is able to talk about the stuff that they're struggling with because there's a narrow space within which your reality is allowed to exist. And if you dare to share those things, if you dare to be vulnerable about some of those things that are outside of what's accepted, you begin to risk rejection, right? And not just rejection from your church family, your spiritual home, but also um, according to the things that you've been sort of taught in a, or communicated, also from the God that you've been told loves you, if you will only make yourself fit. 
So then what happens if you don't make the cut? What happens when the person you love isn't on the approved list? What happens um, if you know who you know yourself to be on the inside doesn't match with who you are or appear to be on the outside? Or what if things that happen to, things happen to you that are beyond your control that make you fall off the list? What happens when conforming to the list gets attached to God's love? Well, often I think the choice people think that they have is, one, stick it out. Turn it off, push it way down, be the nice church lady like Mac, and keep on moving. Get married, have kids, bury yourself in work or food or drink or kids or church. Or screw it. Say, I'm out of here. Forget church. Forget God. And when that happens, there is sometimes a sense of both freedom but also shame, right? Because you leave the hate, but the hate doesn't leave you. And so everywhere you go, everything you do, it goes with you. And there's all this baggage of shame you keep dragging around, and you keep trying to pretend it's not there, right? A sense that I haven't just given up on God, maybe, but maybe God has given up on me. And that hurts. But here's the thing. God didn't make the list. God didn't make the list. These standards, they are not God's standards. What Paul is saying is this. You are more than what your culture says you are. You are more than what your media culture says you are. You are more than what your church culture says you can be. You are more than what your family or your school or your workout buddy or your video game partner says that you are or can be. You are a three-dimensional person who is deeply loved by a God who created you and designed you to be deeply loved and to deeply love others. The details of how it takes shape matter less than remembering that core truth. And as you unpack that truth, you begin to realize just how difficult it is to live it out, actually. This truth that you are deeply loved and made for deeply loving, it doesn't demand obedience, it demands alignment. You have to do some hard work. It demands alignment between your spirit and your body, between your beliefs and your choices. You can no longer split the two. Like Mac, you can't be a man on the inside and a woman on the outside. It just doesn't work. Like Dave, you can't deny that your body exists. The love of God has no room for lies. You have to do the work to figure out what it means to live a fully aligned life, to be a three-dimensional person who is deeply loved and designed for deeply loving relationships. The list doesn't help because it makes you turn off that part of your brain. It makes you not have to do that work, right? That's one of the reasons why I really appreciate the first line of our passage today. All things are permissible, but not everything is beneficial. It's not a bad place to begin, right? And when you put it in the context of sex and relationships, it might look like this. All things are permissible, but not everything communicates love and grace and honor to one another. You can try out new things and figure out what works for you. You can mess up and make mistakes. You can change absolutely nothing as long as you are living a life and handling others with the kind of love and care and grace that God demands all of us to handle one another with. And when you do that, when you do that, you begin to see that three-dimensional living is difficult 
and it's frustrating, and it's complicated, and it's hard, and that it's deeply healing, that it's life-giving, and that it's full of imagination, actually. This is what it means to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is talking about. Your physical self is home to a spiritual indwelling of healing and restoration of life and imagination. Can you believe that? Can you believe that God created you to be a temple of wholeness and fullness of life? It's true. Every aspect of your body and spirit, God desires for you to experience fullness of life. God desires for you to be honest and authentic, to pursue grace and wholeness. It won't happen all at once, but God will meet you in your work every step of the way. God will surround you with people and a community like this one to help you do your work because the community is also doing their work. And as you faithfully move forward, you'll find slowly but surely all of the parts of your identity begin to align and new possibilities for fullness of life lived in relationship will begin to emerge. It won't change the two-dimensional standards that try to flatten you out but it will help you see them for what they are. Fear-inspired, destructive, false. It won't change anything about your past, but it will change how you move forward. As a whole person, come alive by love. A whole person who helps others come alive by love. And for that, I say thanks be to God. Please pray with me. God, we thank you that you walk with us in the work of alignment no matter how fraught it may be. And we thank you, God, that you surround us with saints, both near and far, living and past, who walk with us as well. Help us to have the courage to do the work, the work that will help us to be more full reflections of your love and grace and desire for all of humanity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.